0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jake, and we'll be talking with Cory Doctorow, a science fiction author, activist, and journalist about his new book, The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation. Cory, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on. I appreciate it. Of course. I was wondering if you could start off by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Yeah, sure. So I have been an activist on technology and human rights for more than 20 years. I work with the Electronic Frontier Foundation and I'm their former European director. These days my brief is mostly on competition and on um, monopoly and specifically on interoperability and the role that it plays in, in uh, as a policy remedy to those serious and pernicious problems. Uh, and I am also a science fiction novelist. I have written more than 20 books, uh, many of them New York Times bestsellers, translated into dozens of languages. Uh, I am also a journalist and I've written for lots of different magazines and newspapers as well as doing columns. And I um, uh, maintain a, a blog that's sort of daily at pluralistic.net, which I syndicate on Twitter and Mastodon, Tumblr, Medium, and, and as a newsletter. How did you come to write this book? you know, Verso asked me to. I have always loved Verso and uh, Leo Hollis, who's the uh, managing editor, editor editor-in-chief there, uh, wrote to me and said, hey, we really love your work here at Verso. Are you gonna go um, uh, write us a book someday? And I had been knocking around this idea for a book for a long time, uh, a kind of exegesis on interoperability, because whenever I talked about interoperability, even with people who you know, were kind of on the right side of a lot of issues. I got a lot of arguments that I, I felt were um, reflexive, uh, pat, and like a lot of reflexive and pat arguments required a lot of talking to explain, you know, it, it only takes an instant to throw a deck of cards in the air. And uh, as anyone who's ever played 52 pickup knows, it takes a long time to, to pick them all up again. And so I wanted to put all of the answers in a kind of structured way. And I was inspired in part by my friend Saul Griffith's book Electrify. Saul is an electrical engineer. He he won a um uh he won a uh MacArthur Genius Award for his work on this. And Electrify explains how to electrify big industrial nations like America and Takes us through all of the different counterarguments and whatabouts uh, in a really systematic way, and I, I thought it was just such a, a terrific argument uh, that um, I wanted to steal the format, which I did. Amateurs plagiarize; artists steal. So, jumping into the book, how did big tech get big? Well, big tech has all. Tech has always had giants. Um, whether that's uh, IBM or uh, any of the other, you know, massive firms of yesteryear, uh, the Digital Equipment Co. Uh, company. Um, that would have been very good, the digital equipment co-op. What a strange beast that would have been. Uh, Cray, Silicon Graphics, Sun. There there have always been these very large firms. And the reason that tech experiences this explosive growth is because of something that economists call network effects. Uh, a system or a product or a company enjoys network effects when it gets better the more people use it. So, you know, one um, fax machine is not very valuable, but every time a new fax machine comes online, it's a reason for other people to get a fax machine. So, one computer is not very valuable. Computers in a network are more valuable. Lots of installed computers are a more valuable uh, target for software developers, which in turn makes the computers more valuable because there's more software for them and so on. And so tech has always grown in this explosive way. You've, you've always had companies that sort of popped up out of nowhere and just rocketed to massive success thanks to these network effects.
1: You mentioned in the book that all computers are universal, and there's this idea of universality, which poses a problem to big tech.
0: Yeah, so you know the corollary of this network effects-driven growth is uh, low switching cost-driven contraction. So, a company or a firm or a product has high switching costs when you have to give up a lot to change vendors or to to change the service that you use. So, you know, if you were to leave Facebook today, assuming you still use it, you lose contact with all the people who are currently there that matter to you, um, and maybe permanently. Maybe that's the only way you get to talk to them. Uh, And those switching costs, those high switching costs, uh, can um, incentivize people to continue to use a service even if they don't like it, and even if there are better services out there, because the service not only has to be better, it has to be better and worth more than the value that you get from not just the service, but also the other people who use it. So those high switching costs allow firms to behave in really bad ways. Um, You know, we're all familiar with uh, slumlords who know that their uh, customers can't go anywhere else, their tenants, who then uh, treat those tenants very badly. Um, If you're a little better off, might have experienced the the shocking prices for say a bottle of water on the other side of the TSA checkpoint at the airport they know you can't leave and so they can raise the prices Um, and the thing about tech is that it's always had very low switching costs as well as very high network effects and the reason for that is that there's really only one computer we know how to make and that's something that is technically called the uh, Turing complete universal von Neumann machine I love that it's got these uh, mid-century heroes those names in it. But it, it, it just basically means that every computer that we use is capable of running every program that we know how to write. How to write. Now, some computers are slower than other computers. Uh, some computers are millions of times slower than other computers. Trying to run Photoshop on a Univac from the 50s uh, might take uh, more time than there is left in the universe. But it, given enough time and enough electricity, you can run every program on every computer. And that means you can always run a program that lets you, you know, move your data from one place to another or change its format or continue to connect to a service even after you stop using it by, say, having a bot that goes and scrapes the messages from the people that you care about that are left there. Um, and, and that has meant that for most of computing history, the handmaiden of explosive growth was, it was uh, implosive contraction that companies got very big very quickly, and then the next thing you knew, they were a memory. And um, that was why we thought tech was so dynamic. That was why tech got this reputation for being this incredibly dynamic industry. Unlike, say, railroads or other capital-intensive big iron industries, um, tech was always being disrupted by other tech firms. Um, you know, when, when tech bros talk about disruption, this is the origin of that doctrine, uh, because tech firms are the most disruptable of all, far more so than, say, taxis. Um But tech firms, over decades, uh, thanks to changes in the way we enforce antitrust policy, have been able to amass really big monopolies. And monopolies have unique powers when it comes to regulation, because when a company is big enough and powerful enough, and when its uh, notional competitors are actually more what you call frenemies and are happy to... um, collaborate with them on getting policies that are favorable to the cartel, uh, then what happens is that they can secure policy that's favorable to them and disfavorable to others, disfavorable to their suppliers, disfavorable to their users, and especially disfavorable to new market entrants, competitors, be they uh, startups or co-ops or individual tinkerers, you know, the the infamous, uh, you know, two Stanford dropouts in a garage, uh, or um, uh, nonprofit profits or, or even governments. And they can they can stop all of these different uh, potential sources of computing services and adaptations to existing computer services
1: from gaining a foothold in the market. I'd like to touch a little more on disruption. Could you give us an example of what a disruption would look like in big tech? So an example of disruption
0: uh, within large tech firms, I think we can look to a historic example and then look at how that historic example was, was interrupted. So I um, when Facebook first opened up to the general public, when, when it went from being something that you needed a .edu or a .k12.us address, which meant that you had to be either an American high school or university student to use it, and, and said anyone can use it, it had this really big problem, which was that everybody who would want to use social media already had an account on MySpace. And so uh, they would face very high switching costs if they left MySpace and came to Facebook. And um, Facebook made a bunch of pitches to them. They said, you know, we are the privacy forward alternative to MySpace, the crapulent, senescent Australian evil billionaire who owns MySpace, Rupert Murdoch, spies on you with every hour that God sends. Facebook is the social media service that will never spy on you or monetize your data. Um, And besides that, you can come to Facebook without having to give up on your friends. Um, We have a bot. And if you give it your login and password, it will go to MySpace, pretend to be you, and grab all the messages waiting for you in your inbox and put them in your Facebook inbox, put them on your wall, and you can reply to them there and it'll push them back out to MySpace. And so that's how people can move from Facebook to MySpace without, or from MySpace to Facebook without um, uh, facing these very high switching costs. And then um, Facebook broke its promise and they started spying on you and the users couldn't leave. Um, They tried to leave. Uh, A lot of users uh, ran for the exit uh, when Instagram came along and so Mark Zuckerberg uh, bought Instagram for a billion dollars and when a CFO questioned this, he got up in the middle of the night and sent an email to his CFO basically saying, we have to buy Instagram because our users like Instagram better and they're switching and we have to make sure they can't switch. We have to make sure that, fa- that Facebook doesn't win on the merits. We have to make sure that Facebook wins because there are no viable competitors. And then clearly, because this is, you know, a felonious violation of antitrust law, somebody explained this to him and about 45 minutes later, he sent a very contrite email that has the stilted. Cadence of someone speaking at gunpoint in a hostage video, saying, "You know, hey Fred, for avoidance of doubt, I did not mean that. I do not like competition. Competition is great, and it makes America great, and I love America. And so that was kind of that was his climb down. Um, and and." You know, over the years, lots of people have tried to blast a hole in Facebook's walled garden. So there was a company called Power Ventures, and Power Ventures made a unified inbox tool that would just scrape your inbox for Facebook and for um, uh, LinkedIn and for Twitter and put them all in a single dashboard so you could manage all your social telephones in one place and reply to people from wherever they were on, on this one dashboard. And Facebook sued them into radioactive rubble. That they had uh, the money and power to uh, take that case to court. And moreover, the industry had become so concentrated by that point that there weren't any big, powerful companies that wanted to f- file briefs Against Facebook's case that that it was just uh, little civil society organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation saying, "Hey, this is a very bad theory," and the court gave Facebook what they wanted. They gave them what what Jay Freeman calls felony contempt of business model. Right when when Facebook did it to MySpace, that was progress. When Power Ventures did it to Facebook, that was piracy. And. Um, uh, It doesn't mean that technologists have given up. Technologists continue to think about ways that they can make Facebook better. And one of the things that Facebook did with Instagram was gradually, inexorably, and and finally, devastatingly, inshittify Instagram and just make it a very bad place to hang out, take away all the things people loved about it. And so some um, technologists built a little tool called OG App an OG app exploited a hole in the API for Instagram, that's the, the automatic interface that uh, Instagram uses to let third parties build services that integrate with it, and um, OG app would take your credentials, your, your login and your password for Instagram, log in as you, and then it would, in an app, show you just posts from the people you followed in reverse chronological order without any ads and without any suggestions, without any algorithmic ranking, and it would send no data about how you interacted with those images to Facebook unless you did something like liking it or commenting on it whereas the Facebook official app for Instagram uh, mines where you are and uh, every time your finger touches the screen and data about your battery and your accelerometer and other apps that you have installed and just all kinds of super invasive things that they gather up in order to try and um, monetize your data target you better for ads uh, and and Facebook just went after them they, they went to Apple ironically and Google and they said hey your Terms of Service for your App Store, the Play Store and the App Store for, for um, the iPhone, um, they forbid uh, your app vendors, your app authors, from violating anyone else's Terms of Service. And this violates our Terms of Service. So you have to shut them down because they're violating our Terms of Service. Even if they're not violating the law, they're making us sad. And you made them promise you wouldn't make anybody sad and they're making our shareholders sad and Google and Apple who routinely violate other firms terms of service you know Apple very famously rolled out Facebook tracking blocking in iOS without any regard for Facebook's fragile feelings Um, they went ahead and they kicked out OG app because there is honor among thieves right these these uh, firms and this cartel disagree about who should be in charge of your digital life but they don't disagree that um, and, uh, and with the proposition that it should be like a mob boss and not some uh, you know squeaky
1: kid who's not even a made guy who shows up and takes over their turf. You've been showing here uh, these different examples of uh, something called interoperability and I was wondering if you could define interoperability in the different types um, that exist and how that helps combat big tech. Yeah, interoperability is one of those uh, nearly mystical ideas like
0: universality that is at the same time extremely um, uh, obvious and also has a lot of subtlety to it. Uh, at its core, interop is just the idea that like you can plug something into something else. Um, That, you know, you don't have to buy the batteries from the company that made your TV remote to to go with your TV remote and you don't have to buy shoelaces from Nike to go with your shoes and you don't have to buy milk from the same company that sells you your cereal and you can put both of them into a bowl from another vendor and no one gets to tell you otherwise. You can put anyone's gas in your car and you can put um, anyone's light bulb in your light socket. And there, I have a taxonomy of interoperability that um, spans three different types. So the first type is um, uh, cooperative or voluntary interoperability. And usually that's achieved through something like a standard. So um, companies might say, hey, this light bulb conforms to a standard for threading voltage and uh, other elements of of, um, standardization for electrical fittings and you know that if you buy this light bulb it will always fit in any of the light sockets in your house we have adopted the standard voluntarily there's a standard called html that most of us have heard of that uh, governs the web and any web page written in valid html can be rendered by any browser so that's voluntary standardized voluntary uh, interoperability and then there's indifferent interoperability. So if you go to the gas station, chances are at the point of sale, there's like a fishbowl full of um, cheap uh, cigarette lighter USB chargers. And the USB charger receptacle, uh, the, the cigarette lighter receptacle was not designed to accommodate a USB charger. Someone figured it out and the automakers don't care, right? They, like they put the standard charger in there. They don't, they didn't put it in there to accommodate a USB uh, charger adapter, and they didn't put it in there not to accommodate a USB charger adapter. They just adhered to the standard. You figured out something weird to do with it. That's your business. They're not going to get in your way, but they're not going to go out of their way to make it easy. That's just just them. You know, if you want to mix paint with your paint mixer, KitchenAid's not going to help you. But they're they're also not like deploying teams of engineers to figure out how to stop you from mixing paint with your with your kitchen mixer. And then there's the third kind of interoperability. And this is the fun kind. It's the guerrilla warfare interoperability or adversarial interoperability. Uh, That's a mouthful. Uh, No one can say it, especially Germans. It's like watching a German try to pronounce the word squirrel. Uh, It's mean. And so uh, because AI is already taken at Electronic Frontier Foundation, we came up with another name for it. We call it ComCom or competitive compatibility. It's fun to say, easy to type. Uh, and so ComCom or adversarial interoperability or reverse engineering, that's when the company doesn't want you to interoperate with its products and you do it anyway because you know what? Fuck them. It's yours. You bought it and it's none of their goddamn business. So the third-party ink cartridge that is designed to work with your printer even though your printer is doing its damnedest to detect it and reject it. Um, or, uh, you know, more more historically, Uh, when Apple was about to go out of business because Microsoft was using its dominance over Microsoft Office to make sure that Mac users couldn't really collaborate effectively with Windows users, Steve Jobs had some of his technologists reverse-engineer the Office file formats and built iWork, which is pages, numbers, and Keynote, which interoperates with Word, Excel, and PowerPoint. They just reverse-engineered those file formats. Um, The world is full of this kind of adversarial interoperability. It's how all of the tech giants became giants, right? They, they, They all have this in their history, this moment where they um, decided that they were going to muscle in on someone else's turf. And then, as I said, every pirate wants to be an admiral. Once they attained dominance, they use that dominance to stop other companies from being able to do unto them as they did unto those who came before them. And because there was a big policy change in antitrust law that allowed these companies to get bigger than any of their predecessors using tactics that their previous... Uh, iterations the tech sector couldn't use because they were illegal. These companies were able to get lawmakers to step in and pass laws that makes it illegal to do this kind of adversarial interoperability, banishing
1: it largely to the scrap heap of history. Could you give a few examples of how companies fight interoperability, both technically and legally?
0: Well, technically, there's all kinds of stuff. Like your your, um, iPhone uh, uses something called VIN locking, uh, which is um, prevalent across all kinds of sectors. It actually starts in automotive, which is why it's called VIN locking. VIN is uh, vehicle identification number. It's the unique serial number assigned to each car, and it's engraved on the chassis and also uh, embedded in the car central computing systems. And VIN locking um, allows a device to query each of the parts that, are, that make it up and say, hey, were you installed by the manufacturer or their authorized representative? And the way that that works is that the device has a unique serial number, the VIN, and the part um, knows which VINs it's allowed to talk to. And when you install the part in the device, the device uh, notices that it has a new part on its network And it says, hey, what is the unlock code for this device? And if you don't provide a successful unlock code, a valid unlock code, the device just refuses to work with it. So your car won't work with third-party engine parts. A John Deere tractor won't work with third-party parts. um, A ventilator from Medtronic won't work with third-party parts. And your phone, your iPhone, is capable of detecting and rejecting uh, third-party screens and batteries. And... um, that VIN locking does a lot of interesting technological stuff, right? It, it, there's this whole cryptographic handshaking thing where um, the, uh, the central computing element of the device generates a random number and it sends it to the part and then the part has a private cryptographic signing key that it uses to um, sign that random number in a process called hashing. And then it sends the signature back to the, back to the device's central computer. And the device's central computer checks the signature against a list of known good signatures and says, all right, I trust this part. And that is interesting, chewy, gnarly technological stuff. But there is a problem, which is that hiding signing keys in technology that you give to your attacker, right, that you give to the person who you think is going to try and defeat it, is technically called wishful thinking right? We don't give attackers access to the keys for the same reason that we don't put even really good bank safes in bank robbers living rooms. You know, the bank safe goes in the vault and the vault has got a guard because there is no such thing as a technology that can withstand unlimited attacks by an adversary who can work without scrutiny, without oversight, without, without any form of interdiction or interference. And so, um, uh, Apple has another weapon that it uses here to stop you from reverse engineering it, which is uh, a set of laws that we commonly call IP laws. And in the free software, open source, open access world, the phrase IP gets a really bad rap people don't like it, they say it's imprecise, they say it covers a bunch of different things that don't really uh, belong together, trademark, copyright, patent, they're, they're all really different, they all have different rubrics, they all have different contours, how can we just call them all IP? But there is a pretty precise meaning in the way that firms use the phrase IP, which is any law or rule or regulation or tool that they can lay hands on that allow them to invoke the state to limit the conduct of their competitors, their critics, and their customers. And so in this case, Apple uses a, a specific IP law, Section 1201 of the 1998 Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which prohibits reverse engineering of any effective means of access control to a copyrighted work, which in this case is the software in the phone, even if no copyright infringement takes place. So breaking what's called digital rights management is a crime under the DMCA and trafficking in a tool that allows you to effect that break is a felony punishable by a five year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine for a first offense, even if no actual law is violated. On top of that, they invoke theories like tortious interference with contract, which is a historically obscure contract theory that basically is like, um, I had an agreement with you and then someone came along and did something that stopped you and me from honoring our agreement. And that would be something like, oh, I don't know, like, uh, I had an agreement with you, you were going to supply me with parts for my factory, and then someone came along and, um, you know, I tried to rope you into a deal to stop you from supplying me with parts. That's tortious interference. But um, in this case, tortious interference means I, I, the manufacturer, presented you with a bunch of terms of service, right, a kind of impenetrable garbage novella of legalese, and you clicked agree, and that is our contract. And anything that someone does that helps you not do the things that I imposed on you with that awful terms of service, is tortious interference. They might also invoke patents, just regular copyright as opposed to anti-circumvention. They might invoke uh, cybersecurity laws like the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and so on. And by layering the technological and the legal together, these firms are able to stop other people from doing what they've done all
1: along, you know, what they have done since the year dot. In your uh, book here, you talk a little bit about a concept called feudal security, which I think is closely linked to this idea of things that happen on the platform that you're kind of stuck into, which I think is a nice bridge before we get into the solutions to big tech.
0: Yeah, so feudal security uh, is—it's actually—it's funny because technology is so feudal that there are two dueling ways in which technology is feudal, coined by two different theorists. So uh, digital feudalism is coined by uh, Yanis Varoufakis and coming out in his forthcoming book. It, uh, just because the—I assume the listeners to this podcast might might be familiar with Varoufakis, i, I want to mention that and signpost that this is actually a different kind of technological feudalism. Uh, it is. Uh, the the feudalism of um, uh, Bruce Schneier and Bruce Schneier is a security expert and he says in in a feudal world uh, there are bandits out, out and about and you are vulnerable to them if they want to victimize you and so in order to protect yourself from the bandits you move into a, a feudal lord's keep like a warlord's keep and in this case that warlord would be someone like Apple or Google or Facebook and And they will hire mercenaries, security researchers and experts who will stand on the battlements and they will defend you from all bad guys who want to exploit you. But the one bad guy who wants to exploit you or harm you that those mercenaries will never defend you from is the guy who signs their paycheck, right? The warlord himself. If if Apple decides to invade your privacy or if Google decides to do something that is adverse to your interests or Facebook, their security researchers aren't going to use those bristling battlements to keep bad guys out, they're going to use them to keep you in. And um you know, an example of that would be, as I mentioned, Facebook uh, is now uh, Facebook tracking is now bl- blocked on um, iOS devices, iPhones, iPads, and iPods. There's a little tick box that you have to tick to to opt out of Facebook tracking. Ninety-six percent of Apple users did it. Uh, I assume the other 4% either work for Facebook or got confused. Uh, And um, Apple uh, is quite proud of this. And Facebook says that it cost them $10 billion in the first year, which is, you know, reason to celebrate. But Apple also spies on you in exactly the same way Facebook does. Um, For exactly the same purpose, Apple has a rival ad network built into the uh, iPhone. And in the book, which I turned in six or seven months ago, um, I mentioned that this ad network would tempt Apple to spy on you uh, in the months since it's come out that Apple is indeed spying on you. So I, I called that one for sure. Um, and and this is the problem, right that the the warlord, is not protecting you because they like you. They're protecting you because that lures you into their uh, fortress, and then that fortress can become your prison. And we can't leave it to companies to decide who you should be defended from. Because, you know, Facebook uh, uh, is a bad actor, and Apple really does defend you from them. Um, and so, you know, that's great to, to see them do it, but if, if the last word on who you get defended from is Apple, Apple is going to spy on you, too. Um, We need uh, another form of uh, regulation uh, to curb the excesses of these tech firms. We need another force that will discipline them as they are tempted
1: to do bad things to you. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that was my next question, which is, so what's part of the solution here? Is it ComCom? Is it government regulation? Is it both? I say that it's a mix of uh, mandates for interoperability. So in the European
0: Union, there's a, a new rule called the Digital Markets Act that's going to force these tech companies to stand up these APIs, these advanced programmer interfaces that would let uh, a new organization come along and, and let their users escape to, to greener shores. So you could leave Facebook and go to a Mastodon instance, and you could continue to talk to the people you left behind on Facebook, and they could continue to talk to you, but Facebook couldn't spy on you. You wouldn't be subject to Facebook's content moderation rules. If there was someone who harassed you on Facebook that Facebook refused to delete, your own Mastodon server may just not permit any of their messages to reach the server and sort of banish them to the cornfield. You know, all of that, all of that stuff that allows you to uh, escape um, abusive conduct. The problem is that um, administering an interoperability mandate is really hard. Uh, you know, Facebook spends a lot of time keeping up bad guys, as we just discussed. And uh, one of the ways that bad guys go after Facebook users is by discovering bugs in Facebook's programs. Uh, It's uh, another aspect of this universality that there's no way to guarantee that a program is bug free. Something called the halting state program says that any program of more than trivial complexity will always have bugs in it, And, and there will always be people who figure out how to exploit those bugs and come after you. And so when Facebook detects someone using that API to drain its users' data, to steal data from a billion users, say, or impersonate users to their own users in order to trick them into giving up their credit card information or any one of another million nightmares we want Facebook to like shut down the API to hit the panic button and and lock it down while they figure out what's going on but Facebook also has an enormous incentive to cheat right to say well we shut it down and it turned out to be a false alarm but it took us a few days to figure that out and during that time all the interoperators who came along were not able to connect to Facebook um, and and we know what that looks like. There's actually an example of this from recent history. In 2012, the voters of the state of Massachusetts had a ballot initiative that allowed them to vote on automotive right to repair that forced the automakers to allow any mechanic to get access to parts, diagnostic codes, and other information that was locked up behind digital rights management in order to fix your car. And the... Um, automakers uh, found a loophole in the law. The law only required that this be done for wired netmer- networks within your car, and so they installed little wireless chips in your car, and they started to move all that information around wirelessly and argue that the rule no longer applied to them. So in 2020, the um, uh, the voters went back to the, the ballot, and they once again, by about an 80% margin, uh, voted in favor of of automotive right to repair including wireless but in the eight years that the automakers were allowed to kind of shut down the um, interface that they were ordered to maintain users learn drivers learn that if you go to the mechanic sometimes they can fix your car but sometimes they put it up on the on the lift and then they go oof, it looks like this is one of those problems that only the manufacturer can fix and you learn don't go to the mechanic go to the manufacturers uh, depot because the half the time you're going to waste your day at the mechanic the mechanics learned that you can't fight big tech, and that um, a lot of them exited the field. A lot of them went to work for for big car, uh, and the banks that loaned the money and the venture capitalists that gave the money to start businesses, they all learned that you shouldn't fight cars either. That that you can't beat the uh, the big car companies, and so we would expect Facebook to try and teach interoperators the same lesson, as well as their users. Yeah, you get a better service on the the Facebook alternative, but um, it shuts down all the time. The people that you love who are still on Facebook become unreachable to you for days or weeks at a time. And for a regulator to distinguish a pretextual shutdown from a bona fide one is is what lawyers would call a fact-intensive problem. Right? Because, to a first approximation, everybody who understands Facebook's server infrastructure is a Facebook employee. And so figuring out whether a shutdown was a pretext or not might take years of back and forth technical debate, during which time users are um, going back to Facebook, not trying to go anywhere else, and people who are trying to liberate those users from Facebook are, are exiting the field. But if you add ComCom to that, if you add reverse engineering, adversarial interoperability, guerrilla warfare, then um, if you are providing a service to your users that allows them to talk to their friends at Facebook and Facebook shuts down the API, you can just switch over to scraping, reverse engineering, and other tactics that um, would have been historically valid as a means of getting Facebook's users off of Facebook, the, the same tactics Facebook used to get MySpace users off of MySpace. And Facebook would strongly prefer the managed competition that comes from an API, which after all it it has some telemetry from and can understand and make sense of and monitor and use to plan, to the absolute chaos, the completely unquantifiable risk of people being legally allowed to reverse engineer Facebook's services in in ways that are detrimental to its commercial interests. That, you know, Facebook has a building full of lawyers that it preferentially goes to when someone tries to interoperate with it, you know, when Power Ventures came along, when OG app comes along. And they've got a building full of engineers, and they don't bother those people when someone tries to interop. They don't say, go and figure out how to kick those users out of the system. Because those engineers are building products that make money for the company, right? And they're hard to replace. Um, Whereas the lawyers, you know, they're just there to teach everyone the lesson that you shouldn't fuck around with Facebook or you're going to be in a world of hurt. And so um, if we create a situation where Facebook pretextually shutting down its API or otherwise making it unsuited for its purpose plunges the company into endless bush war, asymmetrical warfare, with the results that it has to surprise its investors at its next quarterly call. And and we know what that looks like, right? Facebook uh, surprised its investors with a quarterly call in late uh, 2022, where they announced that they had uh, fewer users than they expected, and they lost a quarter of a billion dollars off their market cap in one day. Um, another $700 billion were, were lopped off three quarters later when they gave more unexpected bad news to their investors, and, and losing that share price directly impacts the decision makers who would decide to mess up the API because they're the ones whose portfolios are stuffed full of Facebook shares. When Facebook messes around with the API, um, we could rig it so that the individual decision makers who called for the API to be broken personally lost millions of dollars, right? Without ever having to go to court just by just by plunging them into guerrilla warfare. And that I think is a way to create a stable administratable remedy, one that will actually cause Facebook to color within the lines, even as its users evacuate the fire zone of Facebook for safer pastures somewhere else.
1: I'd like to wrap up things by asking you, what do you think is exceptional about technology?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think that there's lots of things that aren't exceptional about technology, right? It's not exceptional in the sense that the people who make it are exceptionally evil. It's not exceptional in the sense that the people who make it are especially smart. It's not exceptional in the sense that the people who make it are especially virtuous. But there is two exceptional things about tech. Um, the first one is this property of universality, right? Uh, there, there is no universality in cars or kitchen mixers or uh, any other kind of engineering-intensive device. If you want to figure out how to put your uh, KitchenAid um, mixer attachments in your Miela mixer, you can do it, right? You can go into a machine shop and make little cuffs that sit between one and the other. But, you know, you can't uh, just replicate those infinitely the way you would with a software reverse engineering uh compatibility layer uh, and, and so, you know, the next person who comes along also has to have a machine shop. And there's another universal or, or there's another exceptional element of technology. And, and it's that technology may not be more important than all of our other struggles, like the struggle for environmental justice and gender justice and the struggle uh, uh, about race and class. But it is the battlefield on which we're going to fight all of those fights. It's where we organize ourselves. You know, as someone who grew up in radical politics, you know, riding a bicycle around all night, Wheat-pasting posters onto telephone poles, trying to get people to show up at a demonstration against uh, cruise missile testing over Canada. You know, I'm here to tell you that, like, Facebook, MySpace, Bebo, the most primitive tools we have, mailing lists, are millions of times better for an activist than the stuff that they replaced. And, you know, we need those tools. We need the free, fair, and open internet in order to fight all of these other battles that we're gonna to use to protect ourselves from these much more important things. And so in that regard, the internet may not be more important, but it is exceptional because it is the necessary but
1: insufficient precondition for making a better world. Corey, it's about all the time we have today. Thank you so much for coming by. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. If people wanna know more, where can they find you online? Where can they find your book? Yeah, so the book
0: you can find at Seize the means of Uh Depending on when this goes out, um, that will either take you to the Kickstarter where I'm raising money and pre-selling the audiobook. Amazon won't carry any of my audiobooks on its Audible service because all of my work uh, doesn't have digital rights management. And Amazon insists that writers consent to having their works permanently locked to Amazon's platform, which means that our listeners have to throw away their books if they ever want to break up with Amazon. So I won't do that. So I... I do these Kickstarters. Um, Once the Kickstarter ends uh, uh, in the middle of August, I'll I'll redirect uh, SeizeTheMeansOfCommunication.org to a page where you can find out more about the book. Um, You can also find me at pluralistic.net. That's got links to follow me on Twitter, Mastodon, Tumblr, Medium, uh, RSS, uh, podcasting, or... um, as a a newsletter. And uh, everything on Pluralistic is Creative Commons Attribution, which means that you can commercially republish it. All you need to do is attribute it, uh, acknowledge where you got it from, and and note how you changed it. There is no um, surveillance, there's no tracking, and there's no analytics on any of those services.
1: Well, thanks so much for coming by. My pleasure.